Welcome to the Davos in the Desert podcast series. My name is Mark Oliver and I am the producer of the Davos in the Desert podcast series. Our podcasts feature thought leaders in business and public policy. Our sessions are meant to be informative and thought-provoking. The topic of this session is the threat of the World Health Organization, and our guest is David Bell. Dr. Bell is a senior scholar at the Brownstone Institute. He is a former medical officer and scientist at the World Health Organization. Without further ado, here is David Wanatik, the CEO of Davos in the Desert and the host of our podcast series. Hello, everyone. This is David Wanatik. I'm the CEO of Davos in the Desert. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, today's program is focused on the threat of the World Health Organization. Our guest is Dr. David Bell, who is a senior scholar at the Brownstone Institute. He's also a public health physician and biotech consultant in global health. Dr. Bell is a former medical officer and scientist at the World Health Organization, program head for malaria and febrile diseases at the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics in Geneva, Switzerland, and director of global health technologies at Intellectual Ventures Global Good Fund in Washington State. David, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, David. So um, what is the stated mission of the World Health Organization? Uh, yeah, okay. The, the, it was set up 75 years ago. It's essentially an advisory body or was an advisory body for, um, yeah, and then, well, for obviously for health and for public health particularly. And the, the idea was to bring, to be a body where countries could come together to set standards for health. Um, it was a conduit for technical support to countries that had less technical capacity. Um, and to particularly to set standards around, you know, primary care and so on. It also had a role from the very beginning in uh, dealing with diseases across borders. And that if you go back in time, 50 years earlier, that's how the, the idea of international health started was through the cholera and typhus outbreaks in Europe and the um, countries getting together to discuss those. Mm-hmm. And what has the World Health Organization done right? What's an example of um, them contributing to longevity, humanity, relief from suffering? Yeah, so they have offices in certainly most low middle income countries, and they've played a significant role, particularly in the past, um, when your countries are coming out of colonial rule and they had very limited local capacity in health. And some of the country officers have played quite an important role in um, helping to put programs together on diseases like malaria, tuberculosis, and so on. Uh, They've played some role in um, quality assurance, for instance, of diagnostics and drugs. And because of, again, lack of the costs of doing this and lack of country capacity in putting some... um, standards in place so that countries know that they're buying stuff that works and there are instances where they have been asked to and have offered you know specific assistance in emergencies etc okay so um going back 75 years it seems like Mm. the uh, premise of the world health organization was good and um you know the the mission seems to be noble 
and uh, maybe earlier on they had some success. Um, but my understanding is even you know going back to Ebola, um, they sort of missed Ebola, and um, the response was not um, that prompt or or that um, successful or effective. Yeah, I mean, first going back to the beginning, they they yeah, I mean. There are like there are quotes from the first director general of the World Health Organization that suggests he's not a democratic-minded person. Um, I'm sure there is people involved who had um, ideas other than you know altruism, but yeah. But by and large, the organization was there for a, a good purpose, I think. And the, the, the emphasis it's important to note the emphasis was always up to about twenty years ago on sort of we call horizontal health care. So, you know, in, in empowering communities to manage their own health care and, you know, a strong focus on primary health. So um, this has changed a lot. The, um, so you, the, the, you mentioned Ebola and before that there was the, the swine flu outbreak, which is a very strange outbreak in that, you know, there's some interesting stories around the way it arose through a very intense surveillance process in Mexico, and then the the modelling that the WHO went with, which you know in the end swine flu killed less than flu normally does, is about one hundred fifty thousand attributed to it, whereas flu normally kills about half a million a year. Um, so it, it wasn't, you know, it's, it's still classed as a pandemic by WHO, but clearly it, it wasn't in any normal definition. E Ebola was interesting, so the WHO were very, very slow to act. Um, it's unclear why part of this could be local politics. Um, you could speculate that there was seen as certainly advantageous in some quarters to have a more severe pandemic, but uh, I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't say that that was what was driving it. But I think when we talk about the WHO, it's complicated. There's people on the ground, many of whom work hard, have good intentions. There's people in Geneva who's been there for 20 or 30 years in the same job and see their role as protecting the organization primarily. And there is the top level of the organization who are political appointees, you know, by countries and diplomacy. And there is what the WHO does and is funded for, which is mostly now specified funding, which means the funder tells the WHO what to do. So although it is ostensibly a public health organization there for the world, in practice, most of its work is what it's paid to do. So it's an organ of its funders. Mm -hmm. So uh, quite a few of those funders are private, they're commodity based, or they're investors in pharma, etc. So you know, that reflects why it is, is a move now from a very community-based health type approach to a very centralized, um, almost one-size-fits-all commodity-based approach. So the idea with the new health regulation amendments is that someone sitting in Geneva will tell the world what to do and how to act, um, rather than working to support and empower people at a local level to act. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned funding. Um, my understanding is about only about thirty percent of the uh, WHO's funding comes from governments. And no, no, it's mostly from governments. Um, 
Yeah, those those numbers are put around. It's I don't know for the percentage, but it would be probably it's difficult to calculate because you know some of the funding is from public private partnerships. You don't know whose money is there. But the, the largest funder is the United States. The second largest is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is private. The third largest is Germany. Um, the fifth largest is Gavi, which is a public-private partnership. So the majority of the money comes from taxpayers, um, but an increasing amount comes from private sources and both from virtually all the private source money and the large part of the public money is this directed funding. So it's given for a specific project in a specific place, essentially. Uh -huh. uh, what are some examples of uh, directed funding? I um, mentioned the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation. Um, what kind of things do they want the WHO to do? Well, the, yeah, they're particularly focused on um, infectious disease increasingly on pandemics and outbreaks um, like you know the Wellcome Trust and others. G Gavi, who I mentioned is you know there's Gates funding and other funding there. That's a public-private partnership solely focused on vaccines, a commodity, the CEPI, which also gives some funding, but that's it's a partner organization really of WHO and other public-private partnership is just focused on pandemics. Um, the, I mean, I think COVID is a very good example of this directed funding. So WHO has been running, for instance, a COVAX program, which is to fund to, you know, it was to inject, vaccinate with COVID vaccines, 75% of the world's population focused on low and middle income countries. The, the WHO has data showing that almost all of those people, say in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, are already immune to COVID because they've already had COVID. They had a pre-Omicron, pre more than two-thirds were antibody positive. The um, Most of the, half of that population in sub-Saharan Africa is below 20 years of age. So they're, you know, one in a million chance of dying of COVID. And, and there's very low comorbidities that are associated with COVID, like obesity, diabetes, mellitus, et cetera. So it's an example where, you know, the, the burdens in there for these people are overwhelmingly other infectious diseases, such as, you know, half a million kids die every year of malaria. Um, one and a half million people much younger than COVID die from tuberculosis, for instance. Uh, malnutrition, nutritional deficiencies, et cetera, are what kills most people and at a much younger age. But the WHO has pushed this COVAX program, which has a far higher budget than any program they've ever run in their history. Um, the budget, the money given to COVAX already is more than twice the annual budget of the World Health Organization. And this is for, you know, it's for a purpose that you can, is very clearly not a significant public health benefit, but is a massive benefit, um, one, to people who are selling vaccines, mm -hmm. and two, to this sort of push to digitize and control populations, get people used to this vaccination paradigm so that you can mandate and have um, really you know, global mandates of vaccine, which are just a way to print money if you're making vaccines. And this gets back to who is funding the WHO. So it is very clear that it is moving towards the direction that is of interest to its, particularly its private funders. But 
you know, it's not, it may not be um, coincidence that Germany is, you know, after the US and the Gates Foundation, the largest funder, they are also, the German government put, invested very heavily in BioNTech mm-hmm. uh, and sees a, a big future industry for Germany in mRNA vaccines. Mm-hmm. Does the WHO have any goals in terms of the percent of funding that is reserved for its own administration, its own, you know, overhead or salaries versus what's actually dispersed to the communities? Well, most of the WHO funding is essentially the former. Um, COVAX is unusual, and COVAX is funded through a number of different mechanisms, but managed by WHO implemented strangely by UNICEF. Um, but the WHO is not a big funder. So it does not give large amounts of money. It works through its staff, essentially. So it has staff in countries. Um, but, 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 but my question, David, is um, if, if COVAX donates hmm. $100 million, um, you know, is there a certain percent that is, is reserved for the WHO's you know, operations, salaries, versus what is dispersed. If I write a check for $100 right. to WHO, how much would you know be consumed by overhead and that kind of thing? Yeah, of course there is. Um, I, I couldn't say what the percentages, and I think it varies. Um, you know, common in this sort of industry, it's commonly 10 to 15% um, goes to overheads, but I don't know what, this would depend from country to country, or rather from project to project. Uh, is the WHO subject to any um, audits or any um, internal investigators? Like the the UN has some, you know, some internal investigators to, you know, make sure there's no fraud or misuse well, of funds. Yes, it is. It has internal processes for that. the The budget, at least at a high level, is public. Uh, you can go to the WHO website and find who is giving how much money and where that money at a high level is going, what sort of projects. Um, so yes, um, but it's not, you know, we, we trust the WHO to be honest on this. There's not any national jurisdiction that oversees the WHO and that the WHO is responsible to if it does something wrong. Like the rest of the UN, it's above national jurisdiction. So in the end, we trust that their internal processes are sufficient. Mm-hmm. So if the United States or Germany or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was suspicious, or if there was a whistleblower saying that, uh, you know, we're spending huge amounts of money on nonsense, you know, or, you know, our own salaries or what have you, uh, own fringe benefits, um, would anybody, no, you, I think you're saying nobody would have the real authority to hire a private investigator or anything like that to... Well, they, they wouldn't, but they would have some um, power in that if they're a major funder, obviously they can um, base their fun- future funding on having this sort of transparency. Um, the, 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 so there's no formal mechanism. It would be an agreement between the funders and the, the organisation. Okay. What is China's role in, in funding? How big of a funder is China? According to the WHO website, it's a very small funder. Um, it, it's it's down actually on the website at list below Nigeria in terms of the amount of money it gives. Um, 
China has a, a very large role diplomatically in choosing, for instance, the director general and senior people in the WHO. Why? So why? Um, or how? You know, how? If they contribute so little, how do they have so much influence in selecting the director? Well, it's a, in the end, it's a vote. Um, it's one country, one vote. So New Way with two and a half thousand people has the same vote as China. Um, but the votes are public. So China being a powerful and wealthy country has very strong influence diplomatically. So like many other countries and like many international agreements, they will say, if you vote this way, you will get you know, good treatment in a certain other way. So there, there's a lot of lobbying before the um, selection of the director general every four years. And China is one of the major influential groups and in a way it should be it's you know it's one of the biggest two countries in the world if the who is representing the people of the world in some way china should have a large role the problem comes obviously if that role becomes anyway prescriptive or you know it's telling people what to do rather than just giving advice when asked mm -hmm. so if you if you have an advisory um organization the way you can you know ask for advice or help when you need it and not when you don't need it that's it's fine for military dictatorships to have a significant role in directing it but if it is able to tell people what to do in a democracy then it's a complete non-starter to have any significant influence from countries that are not democracies i mean that's just obvious right um so during COVID, um, you know, wasn't the WHO too congratulatory towards China, too um, acquiescent towards China, and basically parrot a lot of the press releases coming out of China about the way that the Chinese were so well handling the uh, COVID uh, epidemic? And there, there was something going on with Taiwan, too. Um, mm. Uh, Taiwan. What, what what was the story with Taiwan? They were mistreated yeah. during COVID. Well, yeah. So from the WHO point of view, Taiwan is part of China. So from their point of view, Taiwan doesn't exist as an independent state, and therefore they cannot acknowledge it. So the WHO is not an. It's, it's not. You know, it is. It is there. Um, on the basis of, in theory, representing the countries, and its constitution says this. So up to now, the countries have had a significant veto over the, what the WHO can say. So if a country um, does not want the WHO to say something about its internal processes, then the WHO can't really do that. Some of this will change with the amendments to the international health regulations. The WHO, some of the amendments mean that the WHO can spread information about a country without the country's um, consent. So again, this comes down to what is the WHO there for? Um, yeah, it did parrot um, what China was telling it to say. And to some extent, its hands were tied. But this comes down to then that's fine if you recognize that and you recognize that this isn't an organization that can legitimately give instructions on what to do because it is tied to country to other countries in this way 
So if you see it just as a um, an organization that gives advice and when you need it, um, and it's otherwise out of the way, then, you know, who cares in a way? I mean, it, it would be nice if they were at least said nothing rather than saying stuff that they knew was wrong. And obviously that should happen. But to not be able to say what is happening because the country doesn't want it to, that's quite legitimate, I think, as long as that is recognized and they're not taken seriously as an advisory organization or as a, you know, any organization, any having any power. Everybody else that said something that was contrary to the WHO or the CDC was labeled as spreading misinformation yeah. and uh, kicked off yeah. of social media. Yes. It seems like if the WHO uh, prov prov uh, disseminates misinformation, then that's uh, acceptable. Which tells you how ridiculous the media is and how ridiculous these fact checkers are. Because... Yeah. You know, they are saying that the the sole source of truth is an organization that is funded to do what its funders, including, say, pharma companies and private individuals, tell it to do. So how can that be a sole source of truth in any sort of vague democratic system? Did, so, uh, you know, back to the issue of uh, mistreatment of Taiwan, where, did the WHO deprive uh, Taiwan of of treatment? Um, was that the case or was it um, simply not using Taiwan as a positive precedent? Because uh, Taiwan very successfully managed through COVID and they could have um, helped other countries. You know, they could have provided a case study for an alternative way to deal with COVID that was successful in Taiwan. Well, perhaps so could other countries like Sweden, who, I mean, Sweden essentially followed the prior WHO advice um, and they, they've ended up with a much lower all-cause mortality than in the last three years than any other OECD country. So uh, there are other countries like that. Um, I, I think they can't withhold treatment. I mean, I mean the treatment for COVID you know, is an interesting story anyway, isn't it? And, you know, the, they probably did well if they didn't have remdesivir, for instance. Um, but I, I think that the problem was that Taiwan raised issues about the outbreak and about the significance of it, and WHO ignored them because they didn't want to be seen as taking any information from Taiwan because this would upset China. Okay. So, um, you know, as far as the governance of the WHO, uh, my understanding, it's not majority rule. You have an advisory body that can vote on, on different policies and so forth, but the director can overrule that. It has overruled. Yeah, so there's different levels. So in the end, high-level policy, so changes to the constitution, et cetera, of the WHO or... Um, agreement, you know, agreements that countries, you know, uh, you know the uh, broad directions of the WHO, or, you know, as we see now that countries are supposed to comply with, with the amendments of the international health regulations, they go through the World Health Assembly, which is this one country, one vote mechanism, although that can just delegate to subcommittees and the subcommittee can achieve a consensus and that can count as an agreement of the World Health Assembly. So it's pretty loose. 
Um, the, but for day-to-day -day control, it's a, a very, very hierarchical organization. The director general has um, very strong power. He, there is an emergency committee, for instance, but he can ignore that as we saw with monkeypox, where after only five deaths in the whole world recorded and in a very narrow city, very narrow demographic, he declared an international, you know, public health emergency of international concern against he, the wishes of his or the advice of his emergency committee. So, and that power will increase with the proposed treaty and the amendments to the um, international health regulations. So, he will be able to decide that any threat, essentially any threat to health, because they bring in this one health concept, which really is anything in the biosphere that affects well-being so he will be able to declare an emergency and then take the powers which these amendments will give him independently of any committee and independently of the world health assembly it's very difficult for them to stop him um, because of the, the way that the system works and also that you know when we talk about delegations to the world health assembly they're not necessarily representative of the people of the country they're you know, a fairly closed bureau, health bureaucracy at the top of the country that has a very open door with WHO's funders, a revolving door with WHO's funders such as Pharma and um, with, you know, the, the other major funders of the organisation. So it's, it's something of a club at the top level of public health rather than countries representing their populations. Mm -hmm. And, uh, okay, so basically the director general has complete control right he can declare an emergency whenever he wants despite whatever uh the governance board declares or whatever the special committees declare yeah he can supersede all of that uh and, and declare emergencies and my understanding is there's no appeals process uh at the who uh so if the director general declares that racism is a national is a is a uh, epidemic there or global warming or whatever is an epidemic there's no appeal to that decision there's no appeal um there is an executive board which is another level um i i could not say exactly where the powers of the executive board start and finish the executive board is a delegation of the world health assembly so it's a much smaller number of countries that are appointed each year and they have, so they meet every month or two and they have a, a more direct interaction with the director general so I, it may be that in theory um through various processes they would then override the director general but that would take some time and it hasn't been done to date and i i, I cannot speak to the the fine legal issues around that so some people are concerned that the world health organization has the power to declare anything at once uh, as a pandemic, things like uh, uh, income inequality, uh, racism, uh, climate change, um, in addition to all the possible diseases out there. Um, they uh, can take total control. They can dictate to countries um, how they have to re respond to the so-called uh, pandemic. And um, does it go further? Um, is our organizations like the IMF and the World Bank 
uh, supporting declarations from the WHO. So in other words, if Paraguay is not heeding to the demands of the WHO, might their uh, support from the World Bank and IMF be frozen? Right. So, so firstly, the WHO can't yet do all that. So there are certain aspects of the international health regulations that are compulsory under international law, but most of it is recommendations still. Well, what they're trying to do at the moment, and that it'll come to the vote in one year from now, is change most of those, or essentially all of those recommendations in the international health regulations to um, countries will undertake to follow them. So they essentially be compulsory. So th th these include um, border closures and um, quarantine of individuals and incarceration, um, mass, you know, required or mandated vaccination and medical examinations, etc. So if these changes, these amendments get through, which looks highly likely, um, then the WHO will then have the power to do that. Um, the, the, and yes, other organizations are clearly on board because in the end, this isn't the WHO trying to take over the world. This is the WHO is being taken over by people who would like to have that sort of global power and influence. So, um, and that gets back to you know, what's happened in the last 20 years with the WHO, the way it has changed and its funding has changed. So we, these, you know, the, the World Bank also has its um, financial intermediary fund on for, for pandemics and the health emergencies, et cetera. Um, there, there are other sister organizations to the WHO, essentially like Gavi and CEPI and so on, that are very focused on mass vaccination and pandemics. So the WHO is part of this system. It's a very important part and is being used as sort of the lead agency to bring in these very prescriptive um, dictates, essentially. And I think this is because public health has always been a, it's a very good entry for dictators or totalitarians to get to through the, you know, the population to comply because health is universal, uh, a universal concern and people, it's easy to stoke fear over health, as we saw in COVID, where you know, a virus that was killing people on average at age about um, 80 years or so was put across as an existential threat to everyone. And you know, suddenly a positive PCR test within a month of a death was a death from a virus, et cetera. Which, so there's ways of inflating all these numbers and it was, I mean, it's very, very openly stated by the people who are doing it that they were deliberately stoking fear to get compliance. Mm -hmm. So you can do this with public health. So the WHO has been taken over, I think, essentially for that reason. And it is driving this agenda of essentially undermining democracies and um, moving to a much more totalitarian, centralised way of running populations and running the world. And... Um, so yeah, if you see it in that light, it's it's part of a system. Uh, it's not that the WHO itself, the, the leadership has sat around on table and said, let's take over the world you know, in the next three years and this is the way we'll do it. They're being used as a tool like public health has been used in the past. However you want to define it or 
whatever yeah. cause and effect you you uh, believe exists, it's still scary. Uh, no, it is, and but I think it's important to see this bigger picture because yeah, you can knock over the WHO perhaps, but there's still all this 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 mass movement. I mean, you, you just listen to the World Economic Forum, and they were they you know. Klaus Schwab explains that he has taken over, or he has infiltrated cabinets in order to influence the way that democratic governments work, etc. So it's not that this is hidden. Uh, this is a, a very open movement. Um, so WHO is part of this, but we, you know, if we're going to address what the WHO is doing, we need to also address this much wider movement. Yeah. Um... My understanding is the WHO um, deleted, uh, they passed amendments that, that deleted the line, quote, full respect for dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of persons, quote, unquote. So is that that's, your understanding? That's in the proposed amendments. Whether that goes ahead or not, um, in that, you know, whether that wording ends up being deleted when the final document is only as time, we'll see. It's very, I mean, it, but it very much reflects the spirit of the amendments overall, which is to do that. So um, there's, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting admission, but the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights actually has a, a get out clause um, that allows you to allow, it, it says that anything that's against the, essentially the wishes of the UN um doesn't apply anyway so if the un says health emergencies are the primary focus and uh human rights can be abrogated for that then according to the universal declaration of human rights that can be done so the what the this amendment this proposed amendment is reflecting that and it's reflecting just the the thrust of them which is to change recommendations to dictates so that a central person geneva can um put aside human rights and tell everyone what to do it uh, i mean the interesting thing here is and this comes back to this is a much bigger movement um where are the international human rights organizations including those in the un uh talking about this and they're not because and uh, i think that is because they've essentially you know they're funded by the same people and funding comes with strings attached so we've over the last 20 years, we've witnessed most of these institutions going the same way as the WHO. Mm -hmm. I read that um, a stated goal of the World Health Organization is to achieve 15% depopulation. No, that, I don't think that's written in any WHO documents. Um, there, there may be misinterpretations of what's happening. Um, you know, the, the, they're... So this takes, you know, the Club of Rome in, from the 70s and still exists is very clear that it thinks the world would be better off with a lower population. Um, they are influential in you know, the World Economic Forum and other bodies, and the World Economic Forum has similar sort of wording um, sometimes to that. So there are certainly people out there who think the world would be better off with a lower population, and they are influential on the WHO. That's different than saying the WHO is deliberately trying to reduce the world's population. Um, but if the WHO is a tool for others, then that's a different thing. But I, I think 
what has happened with COVID has been shown that at the very least, the response has been reckless in that it is clear it will harm more people than help, uh, both the public health response and then mass vaccination of people who can't conceivably benefit. Um, so I, I think, and just the diversion of funds from you know, basic sanitation and so on, which we know reduces, you know, improves, reduces mortality, improves life expectancy to this sort of commodity-based max vaccination approach. So I think it's clear that saving lives and enhancing health is not the major driver overall in this movement, that it's not a public health movement. And it's clear there are people who believe that populations, you know, we're better off with a smaller population. Um, it doesn't mean that those people are necessarily driving the agenda. I think there are a lot of different motivations involved in this. So a couple of quick questions, answers. Um, is the WHO in favor of euthanasia? I, I have not seen guidelines on that. So not to my knowledge in any official way. Do they have a position on abortion? They do. They, um, they put an abortion guideline in 2022, um, abort guidelines on abortion care. and. They state essentially that um, at the will of the mother and without any requirement for um, counselling, etc., the mother should have the right to have the baby killed, killed up to the time of delivery. So there is no term limit. And they're very explicit about this. It's an interesting guideline. It, the, the term it uses mainly for the unborn baby is pregnancy tissue. And it doesn't mention baby anywhere in 150 pages of guidelines. So and it, it's, again, it's, it's actually a very interesting document. It, it bases the, um, its arguments on human rights. And it says that because stress can cause harm, causing the mother any stress would be an infringement of her human rights. So this only holds, any of this only holds if the, as they call pregnancy tissue is not a human. Okay. And the, the WHO has um, recommendations also or guidelines on neonatal care, where it's, uh, you know, on, sorry, on premature, you know, care of prematurely born baby. So a baby can be born at 28 weeks and the WHO can considers it absolutely human with full human rights but it can be not born at 40 weeks and it's considered pregnancy tissue in these oh. guidelines so you know it's interesting because it's a, it is a nonsense um yeah. whether you agree with abortion or don't agree with abortion the argument behind these guidelines is um devoid of any common sense or you know thought essentially so and it's also interesting because it would, it's clearly against, certainly up to the time of delivery, is absolutely against probably most countries on earth and most cultures and most people. So for an organization that is supposed to represent the people of the world, what they're doing is representing a very small, essentially Western um, minority who, who think this way. Mm -hmm. Does the WHO have a position on um, 
children uh, going through uh, sex change surgeries and, and treatments and that kind of thing? Um, I don't know if I've got an official position. There are, um, I think, into, there's information out, put out on this area. Um, I, I, yeah, this isn't, I, I would not like to comment on that. Um, I can't, yeah, it's not something I've looked into with WHO. So the, they certainly have positions on um, support for, you know, the general movement around um, the, the gender issues. And some of that is, I think, legitimate and some of it is not. So, but I don't think they've taken an official position. There's just a range of positions within the organization. Has the WHO taken a position um, or joined, I think it was the UN that um, had some statements that were supportive of uh, sex with minors? I haven't seen them within the WHO, I hope not. Um, again, there's certainly no official position on that. There will be a range of positions within the organization, but I haven't seen any material come out on that. Um, I did see the, you know, some of the material from the UN more broadly. And it's disturbing. All of this stuff you can read in more than one way, but um, anything that even starts to legitimize that, I think is quite disturbing. And it's certainly not, you know, just to wind back a bit to this, um, the COVID response. And it is estimated by um, Oxfam, UNICEF and others that up to 10 million girls were forced or will be forced out from because of the response into child marriage. And, you know, this should be incredibly disturbing. This is essentially girls being raped every night. Um, by some, you know, much, much older man. And the, we, the WHO knew this would happen. They, they knew that closing schools, prolonged closing schools, impoverishment of populations, et cetera, would cause this, and they've gone ahead. So I think it reflects, um, uh, it cuts back to this, you know, recklessness is a nice word. It's something worse than that, that people have just, thrown away the basic concern about human rights and human dignity and so on that was supposedly driving these movements and the, the COVID, COVID has just been a really good example of that. You're saying that uh, the WHO's COVID policies resulted in uh, 10 million girls getting raped? Well, it's resulting in a, it's estimated up to 10 million additional child marriages over the next few years because of the poverty and the, the um, closing of schools, et cetera. And then this is from Oxfam, from UNICEF. There is a paper in The Lancet talking about two and a half, three million. Um, so yes, and the, the, I mean, this is a known, uh, it's known that this happens in, um, when you close schools and you reduce the protection of children, which is what the pandemic response inevitably did. And everyone knew that that would happen. The, just in um, South Asia alone, in six countries you know, in South Asia, UNICEF 
estimated just in 2020, over about eight or nine months of the start of COVID, an, an extra 400,000 teenage pregnancies. So, you know, again, this is completely predicted. And, and you know, there's a, almost a quarter million children died from the lockdowns during that period. So it just reflects this, you know, as you centralize public health and you put it in the hands of private funders who are interested in selling vaccines rather than people who are interested in you know, empowering communities and giving them say in their own health care, then you have these inevitable results that um, the, the sale of commodities overrides the welfare of people. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess my final question is, um, you know, you talked about more mendacious players behind the WHO people wanting to sell a lot of vaccines, you know, was, was there enough money um, to motivate these vaccine purveyors to go through all this effort? You know, I, I know, you know, billions of people maybe taking the vaccines and some mm. as many as five times. Um, but now that's pretty much over. You know, they made the money they were going to make um, to a large extent. Is is was that the whole game plan, or is the game plan continuing on? Um, are vaccines, the COVID vaccines, the first step to in, inject genetic material into people um, to try to affect the genes of of people? Or are there going to be a, another slew of vaccines coming out um, that the purveyors will profit from? So they made hundreds of billions of dollars from this. So they're more profits than they'd ever made before. You can't underestimate that. They have a huge war chest now of, of money to do, you know, to control organizations and governments. Um, they, they, there is a, a slew of new mRNA vaccines in development for, you know, RSV, influenza, a range of other infectious diseases. So there will be quite a few more mRNA vaccines over the next few years. Um, it's clear that the, the level of oversight of this and the, the, you know, the regulatory passage is very different than we thought it was or than perhaps it used to be. And so they will get regulatory approval relatively easily. Um, uh, they are genetic material. So you know, Moderna termed internally called theirs genetic medicine. Um, that's what it is. Um, that doesn't mean it's intended to change your genes. Um, it's genetic material that takes over the mechanisms in within the cell to produce a foreign protein essentially which then you know your immune system kills that cell um that's a bad thing in the ovaries it's a bad thing in the central nervous system it's a bad thing in other organs um which is probably reflects some of the issues around the COVID vaccines so again uh you know saying that this is a deliberate um policy to change people's genes I don't think that is um, supported, um, but saying that it is reckless um, the, is very fair. Um, the animal trials of the COVID vaccine showed excess, for Pfizer, showed excess um, fetal abnormalities, for instance, in rats, and they didn't do further trials. They went and told humans that it was safe in pregnancy. Um, 
they you know they they didn't do um, genotoxicity studies or carcinogenicity studies on these, which you normally do on medicines. So they, they there is you know, they were rolled out with very relatively low levels for of um, care from what we normally see from medicines, new medicines, and particularly when this is a whole new class and there are theoretical mechanisms that could be quite harmful from what's being done. Yeah, a lot of harm came from the, the COVID vaccine. So, you know, maybe a word of wisdom to the vaccine manufacturers is don't kill too many of us. You won't have anybody to sell the next vaccines to. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the end, I think, you know, money is a large part of it. Um, but money also brings power, I think, control of populations. And in the end, you can argue this is all for money. Um, if you're controlling populations and, you know, the, the digitized that we've seen with social media and so on, that now, you know, the large social media companies are primarily, they may have started do no evil, but they're now essentially ways of understanding people in order to monetize them. Um, so I think this is part of that sort of trend um and that because it is now in the hands of really purely for-profit people and corporations rather than ostensibly um people whose primary concern is public health i think it, you know, the the care and the um good intentions are more or less gone and this is it's just a business and we just, um, you know, humans are just ways of making money within a business. And the, the, this, you know, the, we see the CEO of these companies and you know, Pfizer's paid the largest fraud payout in history. Merck was, um, you know, the maker of Vioxx, et cetera, and hid dangers from the, you know, these companies have a horrific track record in terms of dishonesty and fraud. But, um, we see the CEO of Pfizer trotted out as some sort of public health guru whose advice we should follow. Um, when clearly uh, he's absolutely conflicted and um, his sole role is to maximize the profits of Pfizer or the shareholders. So why you would take public health advice from someone who, whose role in life is to monetize your health for the profit of others it is beyond me, but it reflects the whole way that this COVID response is going. And yeah, to, to what you're saying, the this is a start of a, um, you know, the, the, these instruments before the WHO at the moment, the amendments and the treaty are part of really taking what was done in COVID and making it a permanent feature of life. Well, uh, Dr. David Bell, thank you very much for sharing your wisdom with us and your warnings uh, to us. Uh, we very much appreciate your insight and knowledge, and it was a great uh, conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks, Doug.